welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. ELI has partnered with Sidley Austin LLP to launch a new podcast series entitled The Enforcement Angle. Throughout this year-long series, our goal is to discuss state and federal enforcement of environmental laws and regulations with senior enforcement officials and thought leaders on environmental enforcement in the United States and globally. The host of today's podcast is Heather Palmer. Heather is an environmental and energy partner in Sidley's Houston, Texas office and a global co-leader of Sidley's Environmental, Social and Governance, or ESG, practice. On today's episode, Heather speaks with Toby Baker, Executive Director of the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, referred to in shorthand as TCEQ. For over 60 years, TCEQ and its predecessor agencies have been a national and global leader on a wide range of environmental issues, from air quality to water quality to remediation. Thanks, Heather, for joining us today. I'm excited for this conversation. Thanks, Dominic. How are you doing today, Toby? Heather, I'm doing great. Before we talk shop, I'd like the audience to learn a little bit about you, where you grew up, family, pets, favorite sports teams, or anything else you want to share. Sure. Um, so I was, I'm originally from Beaumont, Texas, and uh, I think it had really kind of a, a it really created a, a, a need to serve in this area from a young age. My dad worked in refineries. And um, my on my mom's side of the family, we had a working cattle ranch. And so, um, you know, I sort of grew up um, doing what I do now. Um, but it, it, as a child, I, you know, my dad was, you know, um, insulating refineries all across North America based out of Beaumont. And then I spent a lot of time out sort of on the edge of the Texas Hill Country um, working with um, with livestock, but also just getting to enjoy and, and um, the the outdoors and and learning to appreciate what that uh, what that brings. So from a, from an early age, I, I was pretty interested in the idea of what things like petrochemical plants and refineries do for the economy and for the citizens of Texas. But at the same time, you know, back then you could smell those refineries in my front yard in Beaumont. You uh, you you arguably can't smell them like you used to um, when I was growing up. And so that was always something that stuck with me. And then on the cattle side, you know, I really got an interesting perspective because, you know, we hiked and swam and hunted and fished out there. Um, but then also uh, they were, you know, we were making money off the cattle or I guess trying to make money off the cattle. So, um, you know, you kind of get this interesting view of, um, you could really enjoy the land and the water and at the same time it could be productive um, for you economically so those are you know some foundational things that i think drove uh, the way i view things now you know so grew up in beaumont and then early moved to the cent- central texas hill country center point texas where i lived on the guadalupe river i literally live on the river in a log cabin um, I had to be evacuated due to floods um, and then uh, and then moved on to New Braunfels after that, where, you know, there are two rivers that flow through New Braunfels, Guadalupe and the Comal. My grandparents lived on the South Llano River outside of Junction. And so I developed this really deep love of Texas rivers. And we still have the place on the South Llano River. We spend a lot of time out there. but. Um, but there's something for me that that um, is really special about um, the the vast network of tech, of rivers that run through the state of Texas, especially when you get out to semi-arid areas like Junction, where uh, you have uh, it's really the hill country starting to butt up against the the desert, and yet you have this spring-fed river running right through the middle of it. It's an incredible it's an incredible place to be, and so. Um, that has also been, you know, deeply part of this job at TCEQ, which is which is interesting. Um, and uh, and so, anyway, I've, I've had all these experiences that sort of uh, outside of work that have really influenced how I view work. 
I'm married. I have two kids, a dog and eight chickens. Currently reside in Austin, Texas. I think you asked about my favorite sports team. I do have to say my favorite favorite sports team was the Houston Oilers, who no longer exist, which is a travesty um, for the United States. And so uh, that's a that they were. A, I've never been able to to reconnect with a with an NFL team since uh, since they were uh, moved to Tennessee. So anyway, uh, Heather, hope, hopefully that answered your question. No, that was great. I know the audience really loves to, you know, learn um, about the background and sort of the personal side of the folks who join us on our podcast. And, you know, for those who are not as familiar with your career, um, you know, can you walk us through your professional path that, you know, led you to becoming the executive director of the TCEQ? I, I was sort of torn between what I would call almost like a counseling for youth job path in in an environmental job path. I did a National Outdoor Leadership School course after I graduated from Texas A&M, and I had worked around youth in some form or fashion sort of all through um, my time at A&M. And so I took a job right after that with uh, the Boys and Girls Club and was their wilderness director, and it culminated in um, taking a bunch of um, what I would call pretty rough kids on a – backcountry trip through Big Bend, a multi-day canoe trip through Big Bend, and learned that I uh, probably should have had better insurance in place uh, <laughs> when I did that. Um, and so, you know, always wanted to introduce other people to the outdoors, but also um, also wanted to lead people. And um, at that time, it was, it was really focused on, you know, the next generation. And then um, I ended up going back to grad school and the first few weeks of grad school, September the 11th happened. I thought I was going to go back and work on nonprofit type issues. And I was at the George Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. At that time, a number of the professors had worked at the CIA or FBI. Many of them were, were sort of on loan and, and still involved in government work. And so I got... When, when September the 11th happened, everything shifted. Everything I thought I was going to study was sort of thrown out the window just by the nature of the school and the um, the deep roots that President Bush had in um, in you know in government and you know foreign affairs. And so I um, I got uh, whether I liked it or not, our whole focus really became September the 11th and how government failed. In that, in preparing for for September the 11th and in responding to it, and so we spent a lot of time talking about government efficiency and government agencies talking to each other. And when I left the Bush School, went to work for a state senator, and the state senator was Craig Estes, and his district had the Barnett Shale in it. And back then, the Barnett Shale was probably the hottest natural gas play in the world. And it was creating some incredible um, policy challenges where you had people's backyards butting right up against natural gas wells. And, you know, there was this new technology or some called it new of hydraulic fracturing that was allowing them to go into these wells and, you know, do lateral drilling and pull out an incredible amount of gas. Um, and at that time, gas was priced much differently than it is today. And so the Barnett Shale was just... Um, it was sort of a madhouse at the time. And so I was sort of, I was thrown into the middle of that policy, uh, those policy discussions. And it looked a lot different than the Permian Basin, you know, um, and I kind of alluded to it, but you had natural gas wells literally in people's backyards, inside city limits, right outside of uh, baseball, you know, kids' baseball fields. And um, trying to figure out how to balance that in a way that was safe for the public yet allow those companies to go in and explore and, and get that resource was a real challenge at the time. There were a lot of concerns about water use, um, a lot the, about the impact on air quality, um, just safety issues. Senator Estes was vice chair of the Senate Natural Resources Committee, so we were also pretty involved, um, you know, at the committee level. And so um, I got, uh, I just fell in love with the with the pol with the policy side of things, creating good policy ha has really been my goal um, 
my entire career. And so I, I worked on that um, for Senator Estes and, and, and then um, through that, you know, worked closely with the governor's office on a number of things and had the opportunity to leave um, Chairman Estes's office at, and, and go to work for uh, Governor Perry as his energy envi environment, energy, natural resource and agriculture advisor. And so under my purview were the budgets of the Railroad Commission, the General Land Office, the TCEQ, Parks and Wildlife, um, the Railroad Commission, the Department of Ag, and the Animal Health Commission. And, uh, and so I got to work in this really great place where I saw the crossroads of all of those different agencies because they're all related in some way when you start talking about energy and environment. And it was just fascinating and exciting. And, you know, if you've ever been around Rick Perry, you work um, <laughs> all hours. You get calls or emails at 10 o'clock at night. Um, you get calls or emails at seven in the morning on Thanksgiving. It was a uh, high pressure, but um, a lot of fun. And he really would let, you know, these young advisors kind of. Um, you know, just not run free, but he gave us a lot of a lot of autonomy for our age <laughs> and a lot of trust. And so it was this really um, fantastic place to work where um, he would push you hard, but uh, he expected really high quality work. But as long as you were doing it, he, he would he would kind of cut you loose and let you go do it. And so um, I did that for a number of years and got to work on some really incredible things. Um, you know that when he when he decided to um, try to get out of the ethanol mandate, that was um, that that was very early in my tenure there. And the, you know the next thing I knew, I was flying on jets to D.C. I was at the National Press Club. I was providing him all of his talking points, and because that was really in my wheelhouse, uh, and so very quickly learned about you know what I would call you have sort of state and local policies, but very quickly we got. I got thrown into the national policy discussion and then also then the accompany the accompanying politics that go with things like that. And so I worked with him for a number of years and then um, a commission role uh, came available at TCEQ and the governor asked me to uh, go out there. So he appointed me to be a commissioner at the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. I've been working on their budget at that point for, you know, starting in the Senate you know, um, quite a long time. I knew the agency, you know, almost as well as you could from the outside. And then, you know, it takes a long time to really learn the agency. You really need to go inside. And so um, he trusted me at a young age, which I will always give him credit for, um, to go out there and, and take that role. And I did that. And um, in the midst of that, he asked me to oversee the BP, the the dollars associated with the BP oil spill or the Macondo um, blowout. And so I still am a governor's appointee on the Ecosystem Restoration Council, and um, which has been a huge part of my, was a huge part of my job, especially as a commissioner. And then um, our executive director at TCQ retired. And I'm sitting over on the commission side and the commission side is pretty interesting. And um, But you look across the hall and you just see kind of, there's just constant action over on the executive director side. And it was, it reminded me a lot more of what I was used to um, in working for the governor's office. And there was always sort of a longing of, gosh, I, I wish I was kind of in the middle of that and um, did some soul searching and, and um, got some necessary clearances from downtown that it would be okay. And decided to put my, um, my resume into to be um, to go through the interview process to be executive director of the TCEQ, and so um, my fellow commissioners, when I did that, then were put in the very awkward place of interviewing me to to be the executive director, along with a number of other um, applicants. And um, luckily, I got the job, and now I've been there for um, coming up on three years, and it's by far the most fun, stressful, challenging, exciting, terrifying uh, <laughs> job I've ever had in my life. 
but I wouldn't trade it for the world at, at this point. It's it's really a, an interesting place to be on a daily basis. No, you've had quite an interesting journey. And, you know, when you talk about sort of shifting from being a TCEQ commissioner to the executive director, I'm, I'm curious and I'm sure our listeners are curious is, you know, how, how has, you know, your role been different, if at all, as the executive director versus when you were a commissioner? Sure. Uh, you know, the commission role is, is really interesting. At the end of the day, the, the commission is a full-time commission, so it's different than a number of state agencies. So as a commissioner at TCEQ, you go to work every day. And the reason why you do that is you have a, a bi-weekly agenda, which is where you take up all of the um, all of the actions that the commission has to make decisions on. The commission really is almost like a panel of judges. And so it's it's very much like a courtroom in the sense that you spend a lot of time reviewing the record, you spend a lot of time reviewing the facts of cases, um, looking at evidence. And then at the end of the day, what you're getting paid for as a commissioner is to take the vote, take the hard vote on what's in front of you. And that could be anything from an air permit, that could be a contested case hearing, that could be a new rule package, that could be um, an enforcement action, um, an emergency order, all of those big high level policy decisions are actually made at the commission level. And it's um, it's incredibly rewarding, uh, but it's very much, like I said, like being sort of like a judge or an attorney. And you're not necessarily an attorney with the action of you know arguing um, in a courtroom, unless you disagree with one of your fellow commissioners in public, and then it gets real interesting. Um, because all of that's on the record, and everybody gets to watch you have that discussion. But um, but it's a lot of behind the scenes preparation, a lot of reading, a lot of um, really weighing the facts of things. And then you're also the face of the agency, so you do a lot of speaking engagements. Um, you're out and about quite a bit. If you've ever been to TCEQ, the um, the commissioner's offices are on literally one side of a hallway. And then you go through this little hallway and then you're on the executive director side. And I, I used to sit over there and during things like Hurricane Harvey, there are just people going everywhere, phone calls, you know, people up there 24 hours a day um, working out of a you know makeshift operation center. Um, and they are dealing with things like the West fertilizer explosion, the, you know, Hurricane Harvey, you know, the, the hurricane and the tropical storm and everything that came with that. Um, dealing with huge water issues in, in big cities like Corpus Christi, the Ebola virus, and you're, and you're sitting over there kind of going, man, that looks exciting. <laughs> the reality is, is that as a commissioner, you're always sort of two or three steps behind what's happening on the ground because of ex parte laws and um, open meetings laws. You know, you're, you're getting briefed one at a time by the ED or the executive director because you're not allowed to discuss agency business with, with another commissioner in the room unless it's public. And so, you know, Hurricane Harvey's going on and you're not finding out about things until two to three hours later when it's your turn to get briefed. And um, and that was always challenging for me because I, my nature is really wanting to get in the middle of things. And also, as a commissioner, you're pretty limited in um, maybe some of the day-to-day -day things you can change at the agency because you're one of three um, if you want to make it, you know, really change something, you got to go out and you've got to have a, you know, public meeting about it and, and have an open discussion about it. And, you know, I just, I like to tinker and I'm, I've never, I'm never, um, I'm never comfortable just sort of sitting still. And, um, and so I, I've set, stepped over to the ED side where, you know, I really get to push the buttons and pull the levers, so to speak. So now I'm the one that's sort of sitting you know, in that chair when things are happening like um, hurricanes or um, once in uh, once in history, winter storms or um, COVID, you know, global pandemics and, and, and you know, learning, you know, figuring out how to move almost 3000 person agency to teleworking in under a week. Um, so it, it, it's it's been exactly what I was looking for, which is really. Um, the ability to get my hands dirty and you know affect things on a day-to-day -day basis 
and um, and really step into that that role. It's, it's I'm just more suited for that. Um, but it's a it's a really um, it's a it's a rewarding place to be. So, what do you see as your mission as the executive director? There's a few things. I mean, one's the mission of the agency. You know, upholding that and making sure that we're staying true to that, um, which is essentially you know making sure that the economy and the environment are are being um, protected. And I can um, and I think that those two actually go hand in hand. I don't think it's an either or. I think that when when the economy's doing well, um, companies are more apt to take those steps to go the extra mile with environmental policies. The second is just to lead well. The I, I always have been a student of leadership, and I want I want to set the example for every staff member at TCEQ. And this goes to something that's written on the side of the Bush School of Government and Public Service. Um, George Bush said, "You know, public service is a calling," and I, I fully believe that. And I, I and I think that um, this job provides. Uh, the ability to to treat it as a calling and and get the rewards that come with that that really go kind of beyond what what you could get in the private sector with you know through uh, monetary means and then finally to tell the story of the agency you know we've been so um, we've been so sort of behind the times with how we do social media and how we tell our story and because of that we've sort of let um, certain groups and and you know the press define who we are and those definitions of us are never accurate and it's it's very frustrating for me and so i've really taken on the role of trying to better tell the the story of the agency and who we are through social media means um through being more proactive um, with the press and um through being more responsive uh, to you know some of the things that are put out there that are just false, and um, and then finally through being more transparent, you know we've really tried to figure out how wh- where does it make sense to try to you know pull the curtain back a little bit on a big regulatory agency and try to be as transparent as we can. And we have a new presidential administration, and so I'm wondering, you know, how do you see TCEQ's relationship changing? Um, with EPA in the new Biden administration, if if at all. But do do you see anything perhaps changing? You know, the I'll I'll be honest. The biggest change in an administration change is honestly just the changing of the people. And it's because you spend so much time trying to get to know these new appointees and sort of what their personalities are and what they sort of the way they view the world and and then try to adjust and work with them to to get things done and then every time there's an administration change you sort of go back to square one with a whole host of people who are presidential appointees at the highest level of not just epa but every agency you know i deal with it through the ecosystem restoration council we work with epa and and, you know this is one of those places where the press would pay would paint an inaccurate picture of our relationship with EPA. Um, yes, there are definitely going to be places where we're going to disagree on certain policies. Um, and the EPA may roll out a new rule that we disagree with and we'll make comments to that. And it may even result in a lawsuit. Um, but that's literally less than 5% of what we're doing with EPA on a daily basis. We are working hand in hand with EPA on a whole host of issues on any given day and um, and we're actually um, good partners for, for most of those things. And so, um, and those staff, you know, there, there are, there are full-time, you know, lifetime staff at EPA that we've worked with for years and they're not appointees and they will still be there and we'll continue to work with them. So, um, you know, the biggest change is trying to get to know the new people, first of all. And then second of all is, um, you know, we really try to be as upfront and and um, open with, you know, our new federal partners as we can, and that's really something we're trying to embrace 
um, with this new administration. And, you know, we've already been trying to work to get a meeting with um, the new administrator to introduce ourselves and say, you know, I, I have not had the opportunity to do that yet, but um, say, here's who we are. Um, here's my cell number. In, and uh, I know we're not going to agree on everything, but, you know, we're going to be partners on a lot of things. And so let's um, let's use each other as we can to uh, to advance some of this stuff where we agree. And, you know, fair warning, we may not agree on all of it. And um, and so don't be surprised or offended by that. It just is it just is the way that it is. I, I don't see it changing a lot. And you know, there's also this this inaccurate depiction that we only disagree, you know, because you know, we have a Republican governor and the president's Democrat that we only disagree with, you know, Democratic administrations. And that's that's completely false. Um we would we've disagreed with the Trump administration, we disagreed with the Bush administration. We will always uh take the path that that probably says that Texas needs to be um, in more control than the federal government because we know better than people in Washington, D.C. Um, we don't believe a one-size-fits-all approach is probably the correct path forward. The Northeast states are completely different than what we're dealing with because, you know, every single one of them could fit inside of the size of Texas. And, uh, and so they're butting right up against each other. And so what happens in one state absolutely affects their neighbors. And, you know, Texas is a little different in the sense that we've got a foreign country to our south and, um, you know, wide open states, you know, to our north and west. And so um, and then just a completely different um, sort of environment to our east where you start getting, you know, a lot more wet. We would love to have those conversations about how they affect us on the front end before you go down that path um, so we can have a full conversation as to whether what makes sense for Rhode Island makes sense for the state of Texas. Yeah, that that all that all makes sense to me. Um, you know, one of the things that you referenced earlier um, related to the pandemic, um, you know, COVID-19 has impacted everyone, either personally, you know, or professionally. How has the TCEQ um, adjusted enforcement, you know, if at all, um, in light of COVID-19, has, has there been any sort of, you know, adjustment or, you know, understanding, uh, you know, based on the fact that we are in the middle of a pandemic and, and there are all kinds of challenges um, resulting from that? First was, um, you know, going to a teleworking scenario was internally trying to figure out how to, you know, our investigators still needed to go into the field. And so there was an understanding from the very beginning that they were still going to have to do that. And so we just changed some internal policies, you know, not letting investigators ride together in agency vehicles to go do those sorts of things. So we had to do stuff like that. But then also we ran up against, you know, private industry didn't necessarily want strangers, you know, who hadn't been tested, um, who could possibly be positive, come onto their um, sites. At the end of the day, there's not a whole lot we can do about that because it's really up to them. We were about to roll out a more aggressive investigation um, scheme where we were gonna do some risk-based investigations on some big facilities. And the week that we went into telework was our scheduled first in-depth investigation that we were gonna do for on a facility, a large petrochemical facility, and we had to cancel it. And so we haven't been able to do that. And so those are the big ones. And then, you know, we had put a, um, We've been very transparent in granting enforcement discretion because of COVID-19. You know, we didn't really know what to ex expect at all. So um, we created a way for companies to uh, ask for enforcement discretion, but we decided to post all of that publicly. So if a company was going to ask for enforcement discretion from the executive director, that was going to be posted on our website for the whole world to see. And um, it, I think it's worked very well for us. You know. When you have contractors who are positive with COVID, you can't get them on site, then that makes it almost impossible for a private entity to, to stay, um, you know, to stay in compliance on certain things. And so we had to figure out a way to be able to work around things like that. I will tell you that we are very close to rolling that back. The, the number of enforcement discretion requests we've gotten with regards to COVID-19 has dropped dramatically. We, we have, we're really not seeing anything at all at this point. 
You know, Texas also, you know, experienced severe cold weather and, you know, widespread power outages recently. How did TCEQ enforcement adjust in light of the severe cold weather events? Well, I think that, you know, um, so the governor issued a, a rule suspension related to emission events. That's going to be a tool that's going to cover a lot of the issues that we saw with the storm, especially on big petrochemical facilities. You know, many of those facilities were, were I think, asked to shut down and trying to shed load to keep the lights on. And so that rule suspension um, should cover them and um, any that then went down because of the storm specifically should be covered under that. We always have the ability to use enforcement discretion inside the agency. And so we'll be, you know, um, we will be exploring that. But the biggest thing that came out of it for us, you know, there really weren't big enforcement cases, but one of the things for us that was a game changer, and I think it's going to be really illuminating when it's all put together into a, a report is, um, you know, we had almost every major refinery and petrochemical plant down at the same time in the state of Texas, from Corpus all the way to the Louisiana border. And we've never, ever had a um, shutdown event like this, this broad, this large, all at one time. Not even Hurricane Harvey got close to this. And so we decided very early in the storm, I think, um, gosh, the Friday of the storm, as soon as the roads cleared, I deployed our mobile monitoring vans, or our, our, our investigators with handheld monitors. We deployed our mobile monitoring vans. We got all of our stationary monitors up and running, and we requested the EPA to fly their aspect aircraft. EPA flew the aircraft for at least two weeks. And just last week, we finally ended our um, handheld and mobile monitoring um, uh, routes. And so we, we're going to have data, we're going to have ground level data for um, in Corpus, Houston, and the Beaumont, Port Arthur area um, throughout this entire startup event. Um, probably the largest startup event in the history of the world. Um, and we're going, you, you know, I'll just tell you preliminarily, we did not see anything at the ground level that would be of concern. And as you know, when these big plants start up, they tend to have higher emissions as they're warming up and they're starting, you know, as the systems are kind of coming online and um, trying to destroy those emissions. It really, you know, it works better when it's hot. And so as they are heating up, you know, those we have those emissions events and we really have not seen anything at the ground level that would be of concern. And I don't know if there's ever been a more heavily monitored place in the world for, um, for an entire month like we did um, like we did since the storm. So we're gonna be packaging all of that into some sort of report and we'll be able to, you know, through our steers database, we'll be able to line up, you know, um, big emissions events with um, what we are seeing across the these regions on the ground. And it's gonna be, I think it's gonna be a really interesting um, report once it's all put together. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because I don't think, you know, I don't think people realize, you know, what you were just talking about in terms of, you know, having the massive shutdowns that that we had in the state and the difficulty in starting everything back up and and, you know, focus on emissions. So um, it's very I'm sure people will find that very enlightening. Um you know, sh shifting a little bit, you know, beyond the pandemic and, and the severe weather events and sort of looking forward, um, you know, to, you know, hopefully maybe calmer, calmer seas ahead. You know, what what are the TCEQ's um, enforcement priorities in general for, uh, you know, 2021 and beyond? You know, we have a, a number of, we have an ongoing enforcement initiative that really started before the before the pandemic, um, as you probably know, we had some high profile events that um, we had to respond to ITC tank fire, the TPC facility. Um, and uh, it's it, it, it created some some challenges, I think, for us and um, for the public at large who are having to deal with it and for industry, you know, for the industry players who um, 
who were playing by the book and not having issues, you know, you have a big ITC tank fire, it, it gives a black eye to, to everyone. It doesn't matter whether you're in um, good standing or not. And so we, uh, the, the legislature, the last biennium gave us additional money to, to get a, additional mobile monitors. We decided to build off of that and we took some internal dollars and we um, upgraded our handheld monitors across the state. And now we can speciate for benzene specifically. Uh, we're putting a program in place where we can try to get that data uploaded almost real time from those handheld monitors. And then we also um, used internal dollars to um, add three new auto GCs around the Houston ship channel. We also added some additional monitors out in the Midland Odessa region. And then we shifted some monitors in the San Antonio region to get them closer to some of the quarries and um, APOs that are out in that area that people are concerned about. And so um, really trying to up our ability to get data. We also took a review of our penalty policy and we just, um, we just changed our penalty policy. And for the first time since the beginning of the penalty policy, we've, um, we've changed how we can count the number of events, which is um, I think gonna be a game changer as we see um, certain um, players come through the door on a more regular basis. It'll allow us to adjust those penalties up um, as we need to. And inside that penalty policy, we got rid of some things like uh, the 20% deferral for entities that had an automatic referral to the attorney general's office. And then we're also gonna be looking at more of a, um, more of a risk-based um, enhancement as well, but we won't be doing that probably until this fall. We're also currently rewriting our compliance history rules and which will allow us to account for um, entities like ITC who have a large event, you know, right now, that they, they can still be considered satisfactory through our compliance history rules. And there's no, there's no way to sort of put them in a penalty box. And so we are in the process of doing that right now. And hopefully we'll be able to bring that like that rule to proposal sometime in June, which will allow us to, um, you know, just bring common sense to the compliance history discussion. You know, I think you and I could both agree that um, certain entities after large events shouldn't still be considered satisfactory after those events. And so this is really gonna try to address those one-offs that we have to deal with in, um, in our compliance history rules. As I alluded to earlier, hopefully at some point, um, we will be able to do these more in-depth investigations that we were trying to do right before we went to a teleworking footprint because of COVID. And that's really gonna be a risk-based formula that would take some of our senior investigators and actually put them on the ground in some of these big facilities with different things like OGIC cameras and um, being able to look you know on the ground at these uh, and doing some deeper um, investigations that um, that frankly the agency hasn't done in a while and I'd like to bring something like that back and then finally we've added drones to our fleet as well so we can now get drones up and above sites which um, we've never been able to do before. So they have cameras and the ultimate goal is to be able to outfit them at some point with little tools that would help us, uh, you know, identify um, pollutants and emission points and things like that. But right now, um, really just, you know, getting everyone certified on how to fly those things is is important. But, you know, we're, we're really trying to bring every tool we have to the table. I wanted to, you know, turn our focus um, to maybe some sort of more kind of issue specific questions. Um, you know, climate change, you know, was very much an issue in the recent election. It's definitely been a focus area, one of the primary focus areas of the, of the new Biden administration. You know, what role do you see, if any, of, of climate change um, affecting the TCEQ's enforcement priorities? I would say there's a disconnect between what the public thinks we can do and what we actually can do with things like the topic of climate change. The first thing is we we do regulate greenhouse gases right now. You're required to get a permit for greenhouse gases. So that's number one. So so we do have um, some authority there. Now to go beyond that, we don't have much. And that's that's where the disconnect lies to do that. We don't have, you know, a bunch of climatologists on on our staff. We don't have, um, you know, we don't have that sort of those sorts of scientists. We have some, you know, meteorologists 
Um, but out there sort of creating policy on this is really not our role as a regulatory body. We really enforce what the legislature tells us to. If the federal government decides to, um, you know, there's been many iterations of um, trying to uh, wrestle with the climate change topic and, you know, starting with the waxman Marquee bill um, years ago, which was going to create a cap and trade system. And then that failed. And then, you know, um, there was the clean power plan that came along that um, in our estimation was a little bit of an overreach for um, a federal regulatory agency to undertake, especially when it tried to regulate things outside the fence line. And so your guess is as good as mine as far as what we're going to be doing with regards to climate change. Um, the so far, you know. The federal government has now, I guess, is on their third iteration of some large policy, whether it be rule or bill related to this, and not one of them has um, been successful yet. When one becomes successful, then we will, um, as the delegated entity and the, you know, the delegated authority in the state of Texas, then we will be compelled by law to go and um, implement that that federal rule or that federal law. So. Um, at this point, you know, we don't have the authority to go out on our own and do that sort of stuff. Um, but if the federal government or the Texas legislature decides that we should, then um, then we will go do that. Another topic or another focus that has really been discussed um, with the new Biden administration is environmental justice. What are TCEQ's thoughts on environmental justice and the role, you know, if any, that environmental justice considerations play in TCEQ decision-making? The environmental justice discussion is real. You know, if you look at these big events that we've had along the Houston Ship Channel or down in the Beaumont, Port Arthur area, Port Natchez, there is a real anxiety that comes with living in some of those areas when you have these big facilities next door. No, nobody can deny that, especially when you, you know, there's a plume that's been hanging over your city for almost a week and over your neighborhood. My goal as the executive director of TCEQ is to provide the same level of protection, the same level of trust, the same level of transparency to every Texan, no matter their socioeconomic status or where they live. In a perfect world, I would love to have people of every neighborhood feel as safe as the people in the other neighborhoods, you know, across town. We have so much heavy industry in, in along our Gulf Coast that um, every community deserves to be um, protected and, um, and addressed. We've tried to do that. You know, one of the ways that we've really tried to do that is through our monitoring. You know, if you go to the Houston area, it's probably one of the most heavily monitored regions in the entire world. And by, you know, at least bringing three, trying to get three new auto GCs up online around the ship channel that, that provides really as near time, as, close to real-time data as you can get that's been, you know, checked for quality. Um, that That is something that that I wanted to, to do. Um, the legislature giving us three mobile monitoring vans. So after hurricanes, you know, we used them this year, past year for hurricanes. We deployed them um, in neighborhoods all through Port Arthur as those plants were coming back online so we could um, – so we could track that air quality real time and try to, um, you know, interface with the public. We were, you know, putting all of that up, you know, better using our social media tools so we can trying to be as transparent as we possibly can with that data as we are getting it as long and making sure that we were still following the protocols, you know, in the state of Texas that say, you know, disaster response is really um, supposed to be driven by the local entity. So the county judge is be sort of the chief operating officer and responding to disasters. So making sure that we're still going through the county judge's office and incident command, but at the same time, trying to be as transparent as possible and using every tool that we have. Since its founding, uh, TCQ has been a leader in remediation. And, you know, one recent area of public attention and press attention and, you know, regulatory attention throughout the United States and, and now with the Biden administration also going to be a, a, you know, major focus of EPA 
you know, has been on, you know, per and polyfluoral alkyl substances, um, which are referred to as PFAS. Uh, you know, can you, can you share TCEQ's thoughts on uh, addressing PFAS? Um, you know, are there any, you know, potential actions that are, that are under consideration, um, whether it's any sort of, um, you know, groundwater, you know, levels or, or soil cleanup levels, um, you know, what, what can you tell me about kind of, you know, what TCEQ is thinking uh, with respect to these emerging contaminants? Um, we plan on being fully engaged with the EPA on this discussion as it moves forward. I think we can all expect that this is going to be a, um, this is going to be a huge area of um, attention for, for the, the new administration inside the EPA. And, um, my goal would be to be invo as involved with that as we possibly could. I think we currently have standards in place for 16 uh, different um, iterations of PFAS. Um, and those are really focused on our, as you mentioned, our remediation program and, and, um, and cleanup levels. We are currently looking at updating those right now. Um, so our chief toxicologist, Dr. Honeycutt, is, 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 is leading that process. And we haven't gotten that far into it, but we are looking at what would it mean to update those and try to um, see if we're still keeping up with um, levels that, are, that we would deem as protective. The challenge with these, as you know, is there are many, many different ones out there. And, um, and so the question is, where does it make sense and, and to, to spend the money on, on these sorts of, um, on these emerging issues and how do you do that um, with big water systems across, you know, the, the country. But yes, our, my goal is that we would be deeply involved with the, with the new EPA on this because I expect that it's going to be a, um, an ongoing topic of discussion. I would say I it really ramped up about three years ago when um, Ken Wagner was still at EPA, um, we had multiple conversations about trying to lay the groundwork to, to move something forward with, um, with regards to PFAS. So my plan is to be as involved as we possibly can as a new, P new EPA uh, moves it, and then also to um, you know, internally look at what we already have and make sure that it still makes sense and that it doesn't need to be updated. You know, I, I really appreciate your your time today, and you know, so but but to sort of finish us off, I I wanted to kind of talk about um, you know public service, and and you've had a remarkable career in public service, and you know, it was it was so interesting to hear about you know your background and and how you came to be you know where you are today. Um, and you're and you're talking about you know looking to increase salaries so that you can maintain the you know the the talent that you have within the agency, you know unfortunately you know when you look at the polls it indicates that some of the younger you know the younger generation um, you know continue to have a declining interest in in serving you know in government service you know how would you encourage you know those looking to serve at TCEQ, EPA or you know other environmental agencies you know you know how how do you how do you encourage them um, you know what what advice would you have for folks that are that are interested in public service well the first thing is that i would um, say it's it's um it's incredibly rewarding. And I think that, um, you know, part of the, I'm going to get philosophical for a second, but um, one of the thing, challenges that I see just facing society in general is people sort of searching for meaning and searching for things that are rewarding. Um, and uh, you could argue that a lot of the anger you see on Facebook and all these other places is linked to the fact that people don't have something deeper um, grounding them and driving them. There's something to be said for getting involved with public service that goes beyond oneself, and it's it's it, it's exciting to be involved in addressing things that um that are meaningful now, but there are also things that are going to be meaningful 50 years from now. So the PFAS discussion is a perfect one to to look at. Um, the Clean Air Act, um, the absolute you know it's a game changer. Um, these things that 
go well beyond my lifetime, your lifetime, um, I think can bring rewards that um, you never really imagined. You know, now to be fair, you're probably not going to be able to have your, um, you may not have your, shack, you know, your your mountain house in Vail or your, um, you know, your, uh, you know, your ranch out in West Texas uh, if you choose this life, but um, you're going to, but it's going to pay in other ways that I think go far beyond those other things. And then the other thing is, um, this is really getting to the, the the Facebook anger that I see all the time is, you know, put your money where your mouth is. You know, um, it's one thing to retweet um, somebody who's, you know, bashing something. It's it's one thing to share something on Facebook that you might have come across and all of a sudden you're a, you know, a warrior for that thing that you, um, you'll prove it to me. Come and get in the trenches and um, see what it's really like and uh, and make a real change. And, and, and then we can start talking. And so. Um, and then finally, I'd say, if you want to if you want to be where the action is. This is what you need to do, you know, if you want to be where the policy is being written, where it's being developed where the discussions are being had, where the um, debates are being had. If you want to be in the middle of it and you want to, um, you, you you know, I think especially, you know, young attorneys who are looking for jobs, um, you could go work for a big firm and I'm not bashing big firm life, but um, you could go work for a big firm for a number of years and try to work towards being a partner. But if you can work at TCEQ or attorney general's office, you know, this year you could be in a courtroom <laughs> You know, working some of the biggest cases in the world, and uh, and and you're not even partner status at this point, you know. Um, and so, if you want, you know, if you want the action, then then you know we've got it for you. <laughs> so um, um, you're not going to get paid a lot, but it'll, um, but it certainly will be exciting and fun. Um, so that's the, you know, I, I would throw those th those three things out there. We have jobs available right now, and I'm you know, send in your resume. I'll take a look at it. Well, thank you so much for providing some of your scarce time to our listeners. I, I know everyone really appreciates it, and um, we really have enjoyed, um, you know, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, thank you so much for your participation. Yeah, thanks, Heather. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.